The National Archives podcast series, England's Immigrants, 1330 to 1550, presented by Dr. Jonathan Mackman and Dr. Jessica Lutkin. Jessica and I are very pleased to be here today to talk to you about the England's Immigrants Project. It's an extensive research project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and run from the University of York in collaboration with partners at the Humanities Research, in- Humanities research Institute at the University of Sheffield and the National Archives here, of course, um, and with the support and advice of a variety of other groups in the wider historical field, such as the Historical Association and the British Association of Local Historians, who we're all very pleased to have on board. The project stemmed from an idea by the project's principal investigator, Professor Mark Ormrod of the University of York, who was conscious that the history of immigration into England during the medieval and early modern periods, while not a totally unstudied field, was certainly in need of a fresh look. Most modern work on medieval immigration to England has tended to concentrate on the centuries either side of our period, um, at the coming of the Anglo-Saxons, the history of the English Jews up to their expulsion in 1290, or at the post-Reformation period, when religious persecution led to the arrival of groups such as the Huguenots. The period in between, a time largely characterised by overseas and civil wars, the loss of the English Empire in France, and the problems associated with plague and disease, has received much less attention. And it's this gap in our understanding that this project is hoping to fill. Um, The project was completed on time in, in February this year, thanks to a small army of people, including three members of the university staff, Uh, myself, Jessica, and three other researchers, and two PhD students who, as well as contributing to the main research of the project, are also completing their own separate doctoral theses on subjects relating to our work. In addition, we have an advisory panel made up of historians from universities across Britain, Europe, and North America, uh, chaired by Professor Jim Bolton of the University of London, one of the few people who has worked on this area in the past, and this group have not only lent us their expertise, but are also writing essays and articles on their own, on their own areas of interest related to the project. So first, uh, a little bit of background on the project. The principal aim of the project was to answer certain specific but interlinked research questions intended to, shen- to shed light on the history, impact and consequences of immigration into England across this period. These were loosely arranged into four key strands. The first was to look at the identity and size of England's medieval immigrant population. Who were they? How many of them were there? Where did they come from and where did they go to? The second was to examine the rules and reactions surrounding migration across this period and how these changed. What was the attitude of the Crown, the government and the governing classes to the immigrant population in general and to specific people in particular? How did their presence and the reactions it provoked change official policy towards them? And what effect, if any, did this have on the nature, extent and rate of immigration? The third strand was to look at the economic impact. What jobs did did immigrants do? What skills did they bring with them? How did this change the workforce and local job markets? And what effect did their businesses have on the markets for the goods they produced, not just locally, but also at national and even international levels? And finally, what was the cultural impact of immigration in this period? To what extent did immigrants integrate into local communities? What challenges did they face? What ideas did they bring with them? And what effect did the presence of different cultures have on the native population? The study of the alien population of England is certainly not a new idea, but there have been certain limitations to what has been addressed. And in setting up our project, we identified three main areas that needed to be addressed in order to increase our knowledge of this subject. Firstly, 
Much more study was needed into the social range of individuals. A certain amount of research has been carried out in the past on specific groups of people, but these have mainly been those from the upper end of the social scale, such as noblemen, merchants and the clergy. Very little work had been done on the artisans and tradesmen, servants and labourers who made up the vast majority of England's immigrant population. Not surprisingly, this is a rather more difficult area to work on, but this is perhaps the area that will be of the greatest, of in, be of the greatest interest to genealogists, local historians, and particularly those interested in the history and origins of surnames. And in order to answer these questions, we've collected instances of over 64,000 individuals appearing in the various records selected for our study. Many of these working-class immigrants were to, were to be found in rural areas, not just the urban centres, and hence the second major aim of this project, to widen the geographical focus beyond the towns, cities and ports of England and into the villages and smaller communities to examine how far the immigrant population spread across the country and what proportion of the population would have had day-to-day -day contact with individuals from other countries and cultures. And thirdly, the project has been looking beyond the national groups which have traditionally attracted study in the past, such as the Italians or the Flemings, and at communities such as the French, the Scots, the Irish, Scandinavians, and the so-called Dutch, a generic term used for people from what is now northern Germany and the Low Countries. Only by increasing our knowledge of all these groups can we hope to gain an understanding of the wider impact and influence of medieval immigration upon the vast majority of the, of the English population those people who would have had no contact with rich merchants trading in the ports, or urban artisans working in the major cities, but who may well have encountered Scottish or Irish agricultural labourers working in the fields, French servants of the local gentry purchasing goods for their masters, or Dutch brewers or weavers setting up businesses in their local town. Indeed, it's likely that many of these more rural communities may well have had just as much contact with immigrants in the medieval period as they do even today. Addressing such a broad range of questions obviously involves the use of lots of different sources, from administrative documents to works of literature, art and architecture. Our core focus, however, has mainly involved gathering large amounts of personal data from a small number of information-rich sources and entering that data into a database. One of the most important of these sources has been letters of denization, essentially grants from the Crown which gave the recipient the same rights as native-born English people, effectively the same as happens today when someone is granted British citizenship. These letters began to be issued in their full form from around the 1380s onwards and continued to be issued across our period, giving us a relatively large and chronologically broad range of individuals to help with our analysis. Potential denizens would pay a fee to the Crown and take an oath of allegiance to the monarch, and in return, they were to be treated and, con and considered as any English subject with the same rights and responsibilities. This image shows one of the earliest, the enrolment on the pattern roll of letters issued to one Godfrey Van Upstall in June 1393. As it states, Van Upstall was from Brabant, then a semi-independent duchy now in, mo now in modern Belgium and the Netherlands. And although in this case it doesn't actually state where in England he was living, we know from other sources that he was actually a resident of the city of York, where he worked as a weaver and a merchant alongside a Peter Van Upstall, who was possibly his son. The document does include the information of perhaps the, the most the, the information of perhaps most importance to the government, though, right at the bottom, the fact that he was to pay a hundred shillings for the privilege. These letters have been surveyed largely through secondary sources 
the edited calendars of pattern rolls and letters and papers, rather than from the original enrolled grants, mainly because they're a lot easier to find that way. Um, but for the 16th century, as many of you no doubt know, uh, William Page's edited index to the letters of denization, published by the Huguenot Society in 1893, was also very useful. But there, there are a number of problems with the accuracy of that edition. So for, those, for that period, wherever possible, we've, we've gone back not only to the calendars, but also to many of the original documents, and particularly three large rolls, which survived from the reign of Henry VIII, listing literally hundreds of individuals granted letters of denization during the 1540s. Two of these are kept here at the National Archives, while another, the third one, is, at Westminster, is now at Westminster Abbey. The Westminster Roll is perhaps the most fascinating of the three, since it is by far the most detailed, um, and contains the names of 2,671 people, together with their places of origin, usually the region, but sometimes the town, um, the place they moved to, their age, marital status, occupation, and even how long they'd lived in England. It does have a distinct geographical bias, though, with most of the people named within it living in the southern and especially the southwestern counties of England. But this was a direct reflection of its original purpose, something you always have to take into account with these documents. Um, at the time of its compilation, England was at war with France, yet again, and Consequently, Henry VIII's, Henry VIII's government cracked down on foreign citizens living in England, requiring all able-bodied able foreigners either to take out letters of denization, for the usual fee, of course, or to leave the country. The very young, the very old, or the sick, effectively those who were not seen as a threat, were almost automatically granted the letters. So the result was a huge increase in the numbers taking denization in these years, and particularly amongst French people living in England, over 70% of the people named on the Westminster Roll were explicitly described as French, and the French are also the most numerous groups in the southern counties. However, this requirement that resident aliens either take out denization or leave the realm was nothing new, and specific groups of alien residents had often been required either to leave the country or to meet certain criteria in order to remain. Again, these had usually happened at, at times of heightened tension or war, and became increasingly common during the later 14th and early 15th centuries. For instance, despite being subjects of the English crown themselves, the Irish were regularly singled out for such treatment. Irish residents in England were often regarded as potential troublemakers, particularly in the university towns of Oxford and Cambridge, and various attempts were made to force them to return home, such as just before Richard II's visit to Ireland in 1394. However, people could usually gain exemption from these demands, again, for the right fee, and... The names of many Irishmen who took advantage of this are recorded in the, uh, in the Chancery Rolls. Similarly, in 1436, after the breakdown of the Anglo-Burgundian alliance, all people from the Low Countries wishing to remain were ordered to swear an oath of fealty and take out letters proving this. And the names of those who did are again enrolled on the pattern roll. These lists not only give the names of around 2,000 individuals who chose to stay, many of whom can then be traced in other records, but also give a good general impression of the parts of the country where those individuals were living. They also generally contain the names of, the of their towns of origin. And given that many of these individuals were people forced from their homes by the catastrophic floods which had inundated large areas of the Low Countries across the early 15th century, these records often provide the last written evidence of some of those now lost places. But while covering a wide time span, these sources provide us with only a few thousand names a relatively small number given how many such people must have been resident in England during this period. 
and mainly of the richer members of immigrant society who were able to afford to take out such documents. The vast majority of resident aliens certainly never took out letters of denization. They couldn't afford to and had no real need to do so. And many who did may well not have paid to have them enrolled anyway. Even in the most tense of times, many immigrants must simply have kept their heads down and waited for things to get better, probably with the full knowledge and support of their English friends and neighbours. In the absence of any comprehensive censuses or similar surveys, the fullest information we have for the alien population during this period and the material on which much of the project's statistical analysis is being based comes from taxation returns, from taxes levied on the whole population in the early Tudor period, and most importantly from taxes levied specifically on immigrants during the middle decades of the 15th century, the so-called alien subsidies. These alien subsidies were a series of taxes levied upon England's first-generation immigrant population between 1440 and 1487, and the majority of the records of these are now to be found here in the archives at Kew. During the 1430s, following a series of military and diplomatic setbacks in the war with France, Tensions in some quarters had risen significantly between the native population and foreigners living, working or trading in England. Not just natives of hostile states, but against the non-English population in general. Parliament had been presented with a series of petitions urging that restrictions be imposed on the freedoms of all non-natives within the realm. And these came to a head in the Parliament of 1439-40, a particularly xenophobic gathering which finally took action against what many of its participants saw as an unwelcome and potentially dangerous group within English society. Two specific measures were taken. Firstly, new laws were introduced to regulate trade by overseas merchants, and a system was set up requiring all foreign merchants trading in England to register with English hosts, local, no local notables who would keep, keep track of their activities and help to enforce the new laws. A number of the records produced by this new legislation, the so-called views of hosts, still survive, um, again, mostly here, and many have recently been edited and published by Helen Bradley and the London Records Society. But given that many of the people listed in these were simply itinerant traders, not necessarily settlers, we haven't included them in our database. But as is, as is so often the case with knee-jerk legislation, the system was extremely complicated, not especially effective, and was soon abandoned as completely unworkable. Alongside this, though, another act also addressed the widely held, if not necessarily accurate, belief that foreigners resident in England possessed far greater wealth than native-born people, yet were not being taxed proportionately. Yes. Uh, <laughs> a poll tax was introduced upon every non-native person, person in England over the age of 12, payable at two different rates. Those categorised as householders... Um, generally artisans, tradesmen and other relatively settled people often with families were to pay 16 pence a year while non-householders, mainly servants, labourers and other migrant workers and mainly single people were to pay sixpence a year there were very few exemptions Welshmen were specifically exempt not that they needed to be but they were <laughs> as was anyone who had purchased letters of denization Foreign women, foreign women married to English or Welsh husbands and members of religious orders, though not regular clergy such as vicars and chaplains. Alien wives of alien husbands were not explicitly exempt, but they were not generally charged, although they were often mentioned and even named alongside their husbands in the returns. 
The administrative process was initially very long-winded and complicated, with all sorts of documents travelling backwards and forwards between Westminster and the localities. This certainly didn't help the effectiveness of the tax, but it did at least mean that it created lots of documents for us. For instance, in this group, we have examples of an original commission to the assessors sent from the central government out to, to, to authorise the, the assessment of the tax. Uh, one of the inquests they returned down the bottom left, uh, a fair copy list in the centre which would be sent back to the collectors of the tax from the Exchequer, and finally on the right, one of the various documents compiled during the Exchequer's interminable accounting procedures. The original grant was to be collected over three years, but in 1442 this was extended for a further two years. The terms remained the same, but the Irish and the Channel Islanders were now uh, explicitly exempt from the tax after both groups had protested quite rightly and quite successfully that, as subjects of the English king, they shouldn't be liable to the tax. Administrative failings meant that collection of the tax dragged on until around 1446, and it was not until 1449 that the tax was renewed, this time to last for four more years. Again, the terms remained largely the same, though this time people who had been born under the King of England's allegiance in the Duchies of Normandy and Gascony were now added to the exemptions, presumably reflecting complaints from English-supporting Frenchmen who had fled to England when their homelands were captured by the French King's forces towards the end of the Hundred Years' War. In 1453, after that tax, the previous one had had run out, the subsidy was again extended, but this time was to last for the remainder of Henry VI's life. Collection ceased in 1461 when Henry was deposed, but in 1463, Edward IV ordered that it should resume under the pretext that the tax was granted explicitly for the natural life of Henry VI, and though Henry may no longer have been king and probably wasn't even in the country, he still was very much alive. Collection therefore continued until Easter 1471, but when Henry was murdered on the 22nd of May, even Edward couldn't justify its continuation, and it finally stopped. It wasn't until February 1483 that another subsidy was granted, this time at much higher rates and with some new categories of taxpayers, including a new rate of 20 shillings to be paid by foreign brewers. Modern chancellors are far from the first people to hit the brewing industry. Edward IV's unexpected death and the political turmoil that followed meant that most of the collections were not made until the autumn under Richard III's government. But despite this, the tax was seemingly assessed with a thoroughness not seen since 1440, and a number of extensive returns survive, including a particularly long and detailed assessment for the City of London. But unfortunately, the accounts of the tax don't don't survive, so we really don't know just how much the, 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 the tax raised, unfortunately. Another similar grant was made to Henry VII in 1487, but again, very few details survive. But this was to be the final time in this period when England's immigrant population was targeted by specific national parliamentary taxation. However, in 1512, Parliament granted Henry VIII a new type of tax, a graduated poll tax on the whole population, with each person paying a set sum dependent upon their income. Within this, foreign residents were to be assessed on the same terms as natives, but were to pay at double the rates. A poll tax on all adult immigrants who did not otherwise meet the taxation criteria was added in 1514, and this effectively set the procedures for all subsidies collected up until the Civil War. For most of these taxes, the the thresholds, the minimum, minimum income at which people began to pay, were so high that very few people, native or otherwise, were liable to pay, but the poll tax, and, and the poll tax element was only sporadically enforced. 
but in the tax grants made in 1523 and 1543, the thresholds were set relatively low, making those returns the most extensive tax returns for England since those of the 14th century poll taxes. Assessment of foreigners for those taxes was still very hit and miss. Um, in counties like Dorset and Cornwall, the assessment was very thorough, while others either taxed them as natives or ignored them completely. But the returns do contain large number of numbers of immigrant taxpayers if you can find them. Yet, despite the wealth of information contained within the records of the 15th century alien subsidies, they've attracted relatively little attention from modern historians. Probably the most widely known work to date is Sylvia Thrupp's 1957 article, which examined the returns of the, first of these, the very first of these taxes collected in 1440. This article was, was pioneering in its research, and many of her conclusions regarding nationality, employment and geography still generally hold true. Using these sources, Thrupp estimated that in 1440, England was home to around 16,000 foreigners assessed to pay the tax. But our analysis would suggest that an upward revision of this figure is, is needed. Recent work here at the National Archives has brought to light a number of additional documents not available before, and has properly identified others for the first time. And this has allowed a significantly more detailed picture to be drawn. Some of, the, some of the figures Thrupp quoted can be confirmed, but many need to be revised. And more importantly, gaps in Thrupp's figures can be plugged using the enrolled accounts for the tax, a source that Thrupp seemingly didn't use. And that Some gaps still remain in the 1440 picture. Um, the Sheriff of Lincolnshire never bothered to account at all. The return for Lancashire is a complete work of fiction. Uh, Norfolk was only partially, partly assessed, and Hull and Coventry were both missed out completely for reasons that I still haven't found out. But it can be shown that at least 17,000 people were assessed to pay the first year's collection, of which just over half actually did. And the omissions might well suggest another 1,000 or, or maybe even more could be added to that total. And that's not accounting for evasions or omissions in the counties which were, on the face of it, well, well administered. That would see at least an 8 to 10% increase on the figures first identified by Thrupp and used by an entire generation of historians since. But of course, what proportion of the population as a whole this represented is, is difficult to judge, given that all estimates of the overall population of medieval England are extremely controversial. However, 17 to 18,000 taxpayers may well amount to an albeit very conservative estimate of 25 to 30,000 people once wives and children are taken into account, and evasion and other under-assessment might increase this still further. And if the overall population at this time is taken to be somewhere around two to two and a half million, which is the latest best guess that I've been able to find from other historians, then that amounts to a first-generation immigrant population of somewhere around one to one and a half percent of the overall population. And that's proportions that are not known to have been reached in this country in, until the 20th century. But of course, while immigrants appear in all parts of medieval England, the distribution was far from uniform. Professor Jim Bolton, using these same sources to study the alien population of London, has suggested that perhaps as much as 6% of the capital's population was comprised of immigrants at this time. And it must also be remembered that these records only relate to first-generation immigrants, people who were themselves born outside England. If such immigra immigration rates were at all consistent in many of the bigger cities, and particularly in London, the proportion of the population who had parents or grandparents who had migrated to England from overseas must have been significantly higher. Although these taxes were collected over a period of over 40 years, 
As an instrument for raising revenue, they were largely a failure. Only in 1440 was it assessed with any great rigour, and even then barely half the people assessed actually paid. Despite the huge amount of, of extra work involved, it raised less than £400 in that first year, at a time when a traditional 15th and 10th, the standard form of medieval taxation on the native population, would raise around 33000 In subsequent years, the total yield plummeted, until by the, by the time of the 1453 tax, many counties were raising just a few shillings, if anything at all. In Devon, the, the 1440 assessors found 675 liable taxpayers, paying over £20, but in 1471, only five people were assessed, contributing the princely sum of 25 pence. Only in London did the yield remain relatively high, and the numbers of people being assessed, over 1,800 in 1440, remained high across the period, falling by far less than in the rest of the country. The London authorities, almost certainly the very people responsible for the anti-immigrant propaganda which led to the imposition of the tax in the first place, were clearly the most eager to implement the measures, and doubtless London was also a far easier place to assess than the hills of Cumberland or Devon. But clearly the alien population of England did not suddenly disappear during this period, and nor did immigration stop. Other sources clearly show us that. The fall in the yield of the subsidies has usually been seen as the result of increased exemptions and evasion. But while evasion may go some way to explain the barely 50% collection rate in 1440, these alone cannot explain the impossibly low figures reported in the 1450s and 1460s. Increased exemptions would certainly have accounted for some of the fall, but, but large groups such as the Dutch and the Scots were never exempt. And whereas over 570 people were assessed in Northumberland in 1440, almost all of whom were Scots, by 1453 only 14 were being taxed. It's inconceivable that Scots were no longer working in Northumberland in the 1450s, and the Dutch people, who were so numerous in East Anglia and in the South East, didn't all suddenly set sail for home. The precise reasons for the reduction in numbers remain unclear, but much of it must have been due to widespread apathy, incompetence, and possibly even fraud amongst the officials. The records are littered with examples not only of simple errors and failures in the administration, but also clear dereliction of duty and attempts to cover up that neglect. Many officials just reused old documents rather than holding new inquests, and in 1467, the Kent officials returned an almost certainly fictitious inquest where many of the supposed taxpayers were, had been given the names of birds and fish. <laughs> and two Rutland sheriffs both failed to make their collection at all, and one of them found himself thrown into the fleet prison as a result. Perhaps these officials simply couldn't be bothered to assess a tax that yielded so little. Or perhaps, contrary to the xenophobic feelings being expressed from some quarters, the officials and the local juries charged with assessing the tax simply had no appetite for levying a tax on people who may have lived amongst them for years and even decades. Um, so, so what can we do with all this information? Um, the names of the individuals we've discovered from these major sources are all on our newly available database, which Jessica will now demonstrate to you. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Right, so this is our website and database, um, which is publicly available, um, englandsimmigrants.com. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 9th of April 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, 
Rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.